I don't know how to introduce this, but uh, we're we're doing a a tag team interview today. Justin, everybody knows Justin. This is I'm speaking I'm speaking now to East as a podcast listeners, but this is going to be on two different podcasts. But Justin, you're here. I'm I'm here, and I am very excited about this. Uh, what is this? Where are we, Manon? Can you introduce yourself? Welcome to our show. Apparently, we're still figuring <laughs> this out. <laughs> Hey everyone! Uh, thank you, thank you to both Justin and Sina for having me where wherever the there is. Delighted to be here. I would be remiss if I didn't start this by firstly saying I'm very sorry for standing you up a year and a half ago. <laughs> I was I was not in the best of place at the time, and I didn't put it on my phone. And I was like, "What?" And I and and to this day, I don't know what day it is. So I'm very sorry, and I hope I hope you forgive me. And um, uh, yeah, this this guilt has been eating me up for a year and a half, so I feel much better. <laughs> Absolutely, no, no, no worries. I've been stood up by lesser, lesser mortals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at some point, it becomes an honor to be stood up by someone, right? <laughs> I just, this is I think I've got a podcast. I've been stood up by Easton's of podcast. Uh, so we should we should get started. So this interview, as I said before, we're going to kind of figure this out. Justin and I have we've collaborated together, but. It, it's we've never we've never <laughs> we've never tried this um so this will be fun and i think part as i said part of this will be on justin's podcast the anti-empire project and part of this will be on my podcast uh the east is a podcast so i you know this will be here we go um first of all the first thing i want to say is before handing it over to justin because justin you should you should be in charge uh is congratulations on this book i'm sorry that it came out man on during this covid hell in the hellscape and you can't be fed it all around the world and going places and reading it but congratulations it's quite the feat it's like this this sprawling thing you've got all these languages like it's it must feel really good uh so yeah i'm gonna say that but justin you take over from now oh wow okay <laughs> manan this yeah. book is you know i've been I'm, I'm from south india i'm from kerala and you know i've been reading about india since i was a teenager you know gandhi and Nehru and and I've always you know from the south I always understand you know Hindustan to be like points north of where we are. I've I've heard people from South India whether it's Tamils or Malayalis or uh, assert like no it's not Hindustan it's India because you know India to them was more inclusive but reading your book and the actual history of it you realize that's not quite the case and you realize that you know, in fact, you know, and you're, you're, you've got a much more nuanced take on this. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it in a kind of a nationalistic way. But in fact, I, I, th- I came to the conclusion that Hindustan is the more inclusive term, ultimately, uh, com- by comparison to India, which is ultimately a colonial, uh, to use your word, invention, right? So can you just, yeah, why don't, this is a good place to start, like, well, thank you. I mean, thank you. Thank you both again. And thank you. Thank you for your kind words. about the book. I'm really glad to hear, Justin, that at least one part of it, um, the part that um, is about Hindustan as a concept um, stood out to you. Um, actually, let me let me uh, let me kind of dial back um, and, and tell you a little story from when I moved to Germany in 2009 and uh, to teach. And um, in Berlin, and they were celebrating the 20th anniversary of. Um, Wait, I was there in 2009. I was there for that celebration. It was it was horrible. It was so annoying. <laughs> you, you remember the you remember the puppet the puppet? Yes, yes, yes I remember I was, that. I was at the puppet show. Yes. Did they talk about all the social benefits and stuff that the East Germans lost by <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the process of becoming basically a colony of? Right. So so. I was there and I was actually, so I was in a department where the administrative staff was from East, you know, from putative East Germany and the faculty were all Western. And, um, and so there's this conversation happening. Uh, you know, I'm, my German is not very good at that point and probably right, right now. And there's a, there's a rising tension in the room. And I, I turned to one older elderly professor next to me. Um, uh, and I said, you know, can you explain like what's, what's happening? And he's like, well, you know, these East Germans, they, they think they, that we owe them even more than, uh, what we've given them. 
<laughs> that's exactly what they said. It's exactly what they said about Greece when they were plundering Greece in 2015, right? It's, it's and uh, always victims. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember thinking to myself, like you know, there's this idea of partition, which is a, a tearing up of a territory that um, that was built on this idea of a kind of a primordial difference, right? Like the Hindus and Muslims are primordially civilizationally different. And so the, to solve colonization um, and to enter into decolonization is to, to respect that difference. And I, sitting there, there's a gentleman who is born and raised in Charlottenburg, has, uh, you know, very, very, I don't know if you I mean, maybe I guess Sina would know what I'm picturing in my head, but, you know, it's a very typical. Yeah, it's like their Highgate. It's yeah. their upper class quarter, West West Berlin. Yeah, and actually, a lot of Iranians live there. Well, a lot of Iranians live there. Absolutely, absolutely. And the great, the big, uh, the big assassination happened there. Yeah, the, yeah. And on Kantstrasse, um, the and and the other person is uh, you know s- sitting there, and 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 there the logic of partition and the logic of reunification wasn't built on a primordial difference. It was built either through questions of politics, ideology, or class. And what I thought, what I remember kind of feeling was that, you know, there's a way in which um, there were class differences, there were regional differences uh, in the subcontinent. There were um, obviously languages that are different in the subcontinent between place to place. And the way in which the colonization took one specific aspect, religion in this case, um, and created a civilizational discourse out of it, you know, not just in 1947 when the partition happened, but, you know, as early as 1905 when Bengal was partitioned along um, religious lines by the colonial, by the British colony colonizers. Um, That got me sort of kind of started to think about this idea of how colonization acts on particular pressure points, right? Mm -hmm. And such that they become, um, they become the primary forms through which one can see the world. Yeah. Um, and we see this also, obviously, when Iraq war started to go south for the American um, you know, military, that suddenly Shias and Sunnis were in primordial conflict. And I remember Fallujah being talked about and, you know, these, this, is, this Shia-Sunni struggle is not because we bombed and we are occupied, but this is because, you know, the prophet couldn't figure out how to put his uh, succession into and so I guess I guess one of the ways in which I started to kind of think about this project was was not just that you know colonialism rendered the world in particular shapes that were geopolitically organized, but that the colonized themselves or the post colonized or the you know decolonized whatever however we want to approach this question imagined those same worlds as the, the as the primordial world. Um, yeah. While contesting the idea of colonization, while understanding that the British, sure, the British have been in power in the subcontinent for you know 250 years, so we can understand that they are still outsiders. We can understand that they are still colonizers. But the ideology that they are they are kind of um, promoting, we naturalize them. We be yeah. Below the that's it. That's that's my problem. You write a, a lot about one of the early uh, Hindutva uh, intellectuals, Savarkar, a fair bit. And I read Savarkar's book about 1857. And that was my problem with him. I was I was thinking like he's got, you know, he's his critique of the British was on point, you know, in that book about 1857. But then he lumps the Muslims in right. with the British as these foreign colonizers. And it's like, you know, you don't realize, um, if I could talk to Savarkar, I would say, you know, you don't realize that you've actually absorbed the British worldview of of India or, you know, Hindustan right. in, the, in, in identifying the Muslims as colonizers that way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think so Savarkar is a great example. And that's why I've opened my book with him or with, when one of the poems that he composes before he's arrested and sent to the Andaman Islands by the British. And, and the idea there is, I think, that, that Savarkar um, is, is picking up and, and I, I think, um, using to invent this notion of a pure Hindu Rashtra, mm-hmm. Hindu nation, um, is very much taken up both by this notions of origins, right, of nationalistic origins, 
religions and what peoples yeah. get to be considered within and what peoples get to be considered without. Um, but also that, you know, he, um, I think, very powerfully, powerfully for, for this idea, obviously, um, combines that with the kind of fascist uh, yeah. notions of, of uh, not just purity in terms of origins, but purity in terms of everyday life and decorum and masculinity and um, social reordering, right? So for Savarkar, it wasn't just a question of the past, right? But also in his six uh, epochs, uh, glorious epochs, his, his later history, um, you know, I mean, he wanted to go around purifying the, the space of uh, the subcontinent from Muslims, as in this is not simply a, a project of the past, but a project of the future where Muslims would be, you know, expelled or reconverted um, and other other things like mass rapes be committed in order to uh, mass rapes be committed for on Muslim women in order to, um, um, you know, uh, rectify or, yeah. or, or fill the ledger, um, balance mm-hmm. the ledger sheet against what they thought the Muslims uh, were doing. So as part of this project that you're doing which you know again like it's so valuable it reminds me you know obviously you're influenced by Edward Said but uh, you know Anwar Abdel Malik too it's like you've got this passage early on it's page 4 uh, where you say um, you, you talk about how like Pakistan people don't people accept that Pakistan was created in 1947 but not India um, you know, we we are content with the convention that while Pakistan came into being in 1947, India was something that stretches back to an ancient period. This is puzzling since, uh, you know, people start to use uh, South Asia. But there's this thing you say, colonization refuses the colonized access to their own past. By imposing a colonial language, it retards the capacity of indigenous languages to represent reality. It removes the archives, renders history as a lack, and blurs faces and names. So, it's um, so you're trying in some way to 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 overcome that, right? Like going back to medieval sources and and trying to uh, trying to get some of that past back. Is that fair? It is fair. I think I think um, I think the problem we face, and this is something I think well articulated by by elders like Franz Fanon and. Amy Césaire, that I think when we when we look to the pre-colonial period um, um, in as 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 what I call you know in my book myself a post-colonized subject um, mm-hmm. when we look to the pre-colonial period the the colonial infrastructure of nostalgia and recuperation becomes a primary lens right and yeah. and so we think through German idealism. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if if a if a post-colonized figure kind of looks back, he's doing the same thing. They're doing the same thing that you know Goethe is doing, and and it's not. We're we're any, no post-colonized subject has ever stood up, and even even I want to say Gandhi in Satyagraha, thinking about village India, is is not actually saying that this is a return to a pre-colonial reality, but rather. Um, how do we how do we get out of the episteme that colonialism has put us in? And I think for me that was the I think one of the primary intellectual kind of reasons for doing this book was to say, you know, if we understand the colonial episteme as having formed over a period of time and it it, it allows a certain worldview to happen, what other worldviews were possible before that? Um, and and what was the dialogue between that world and the world that the colonial uh, episteme is creating? And that's why I think Hindustan, I was very eager to not just put it pre-British, but put Hindustan um, alongside the creation of British India, alongside the creation mm-hmm. of the Raj. Right, uh, so to know. show that evolution, yeah. I wanted to also, like... you. You know, one of the books that I read when I was really young was The Idea of India by Nehru. And I, I kind of, I don't know whether you did this on purpose, but like you called your book The Loss of Hindustan and the Invention of India. Right. And his was called The Discovery. It wasn't the idea. It was The Discovery yeah. of India, right? Yeah. So he's trying to argue. And there's, yeah, you have a section called The Discovery of India. So, um, yeah. How do you, did you, did you see some kind of dialogue with, with Nehru and in that in like or some kind of answer to Nehru's discovery of India in yeah, your... absolutely so I think 
One thing that became, and this this is a little bit of a kind of inside baseball. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm fascinated with is how history gets um, kind of imagined um, by people who are writing history. Um, yeah. you know, what do they think is the putative subject, I guess, of history? And so when, when I looked at um, figures like Nehru, Gandhi, Ambedkar, Savarkar, Jinnah, people who are engage in anti-colonial struggle and coming up with, you know, various responses to it. Um, what I noticed is that they all, at some point or the other, explicitly and in, or implicitly write histories. Um, and we can also see this in other parts of the kind of colonized world, um, where intellectuals, one way of kind of doing anti-colonial work um, is to actually do history. Um, and that historicizing, not of not only of languages or peoples or nation states or ideas is an important part of how to make an argument against colonialism and specifically against the colonial argument of liberal emancipatory potential that, you know, especially yeah. in a place like British India, the, col the, co the colonizers are very keen to deploy, right? Like you're in the waiting room of history, we'll train you, we'll give you, you know, we'll, we'll rid your minds of superstitions and religions and bad practices and give you a semi-autonomous assembly and eventually you will be free. Um, you know, you just have to kind of uh, wait for prove it. it. Yeah. And you have to prove that you're worthy of it. And you have to prove it. And so, um, so I was, I've always been fascinated by this act of anti-colonial struggle, right? This writing of history and including Nehru's discovery of India, but not just uh, uh, discovery of India, uh, but he writes these letters to his daughter, Indra Gandhi. And uh, I think it's called The World That Was. I'm, I'm forgetting the, the name, uh, Glimpses of World History. These are letters written from the jail while he's in prison to his daughter that are basically kind of snippets of history, history writing. And what I, I thought was incredibly important was that when Nehru is constructing a nationalist or anti-colonial vision of history, what he has access to are two types of domains. He has access to the kind of um, what we would call disciplinary history writing of the late 19th, early 20th century, um, mm -hmm. and which is done by the colonial uh, officers and orientalists. Or orientalists, yeah. yeah. And then he, then he juxtaposes that with kind of Mahabharata or Ramayan or, or what he thinks are folk or native registers. They exist in a domain other than history writing for him. Yeah. So yes. They they are stories. They are they are songs. They are spirit and action and Kabir and all you know, very important things. And so the first thing that uh, I began with was like that that juxtaposition is actually unequal because on the one hand you're saying there is a Orientalist scholarship and on the other hand you're saying there's perhaps lived experience or perhaps uh, belief. Uh, cosmologies or perhaps, um, you know, some architectural or archaeological remains. Um, so I said to myself, like, how do we actually make a same to same comparison? How do we how do we kind of think of history writing on a on a parallel um, and say, what are the histories that are being written in Hindustan um, as the Orientalist production begins in the late 18th century? Um, and what do they say about this world that uh, the colonial producers of this knowledge are saying. So um, for me, Nehru and uh, Ambedkar also wrote a history and um, Jinnah never wrote a history, but uh, people like Iqbal uh, wrote about history and Iqbal is also a little bit part of my introduction. So for me, these, these figures from the um, early part of the 20th century were important uh, benchmarks to think about historiography uh, from a new perspective. I want to... Um... I want to take up that that whole relationship between Farishta and Dao and and the Orientalists, but first, uh, Sina Sina definitely wants me to ask you um, about the the borders. So, like the hard geopolitics, the borders, the India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Well, you know, I guess we can get into Sri Lanka as well, but like the you know the so called subcontinent, which. It's an interesting. I think it was Andre Gunderfrank who said, who pointed out, like, why is uh, why is India a subcontinent, right. and the European Peninsula is a continent? A continent. Yeah. 
but yeah, but Ted, can you uh, can you give us like the an overview of the this kind of geopolitical, I guess, the borders today and how they came to be in a couple of minutes, and then we'll go back to. Sure. I mean, I think one of the, you know, I mentioned earlier about partitions. One of the things that um, the colonial, the British colonial were invested in as early as 1905, I mentioned, was like how to govern, uh, govern the subcontinent. And um, one of the options that they had um, based on the ideology that there are two civilizational, uh, there was a conquered civilization and a conquering civilization. And the conquering civilization represented Oriental despotism and Muslim must best be replaced by liberal uh, liberal rule, um, was to separate the two uh, populations, separate them administratively, separate them legally, separate them linguistically, and then by separating, uh, make them more governable. Um, and later on in, in the African continent, it becomes known as the dividing, uh, dividing rule strategy. Um, and so the colonial argument as early as 1905, 1906, uh, basically kind of builds an argumentative, um, uh, sorry, but an administrative reality on the ground, such that by the 30s and 40s, there is an argument for separate electorate rep- representation and minority majority politics is the kind of main domain through which rights can be recognized. So what's a minority community? Well, Muslims are a minority. Uh, what's a majority community? Well, Hindus are a majority. While Muslims and Hindus may or may not be coalescent categories, may not be whole categories, may not be self-aware categories, but they are administrative, electoral, legislative, and then civilizational categories. And so once the idea that, uh, you know, during the Second War, that the British will withdraw in some capacity from colonial holdings, that idea could only be put forward, um, I think, in a political sense through this notion of administrative uh, partition. And there are various visions of this in the 30s and 40s. Some people, even the people who are doing this work, the the nationalist leaders, you know, some are imagining a federated system, some are imagining a kind of, um, you know, like a pilot project, like we'll do this for a few years and then things will settle down and we'll come back to the normal. Um, some are imagining that this is just on very few grounds, like defense will be separate, uh, will be uniform, but maybe our, you know, our, our um, customary law will be separate and so on and so forth. And then in the, in the kind of rush that happens in 46, 47, rush as in Russian, uh, the British colonial rush to divest itself, the um, anti-colonial struggle to fulfill itself, um, all of this um, ends up in a very hard partition that is drawn by a guy named Ratcliffe using custodial administrative maps. And it bifurcates Punjab in the north, it bifurcates Bengal in the east, um, and it creates a basically a three t- three-tiered world. Uh, there's Pakistan with West Pakistan and East Pakistan on either end of the subcontinent. And then there's India in the middle. And then there are these princely states that have the options to join one or the other. Um, the two most important ones or the two sizable ones are Kashmir and Hyderabad. Uh, the um, and that, let's just call it a um, moth-ridden, uh, as, as Mary did, <laughs> Uh, that moth-ridden plan immediately uh, begins a horrific cycle of violence uh, because of mass mobilization, which cre- which create an uh, immense number of refugees, which leads to wars. And basically, the logic of partition begins to be made real as soon as December of 1947. Um, and it continues to kind of accrue um, as late as the mid-60s, late 60s, um, uh, I remember my mother's generation, well, typically, actually, my grand grandparents' generation could still traverse the border, right. could still go to the other side as late as the 60s, uh, early 60s. Um, but by the 68, 65 war, and really after that, um, these partitions become uh, 
much and much more hardened. And in 71, East Pakistan um, fights for its independence from West Pakistan and becomes Bangladesh. And that, to me, is how I, I actually think of the partitioned world beginning uh, with 1971. Um, and there, I think, the logic of um, civilizational difference and religious difference um, intersected to create um, ethno difference, uh, ethno linguistic difference, um, and much of the history of the subcontinent since the seventy one have actually been on ethno linguistic difference until the the kind of two thousand one I would say um, two thousand one created again a civilizational discourse um, for Pakistan. It created um, a civilizational discourse for Modi. And I think we, we kind of returned back to the religious civilizational question, but for a while we were in ethno-linguistic um, uh, realm as the Naxalite movement in India, the Sin nationalism, Balochi nationalism in Pakistan can help us. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got, I think that your book has a lot of um, value in thinking through like what's going on in India today, which I think of as pretty, pretty bad <laughs> and, uh, and unpredictable in terms of where it's going to go in terms of what Modi has been able to do and probably is still yet to do. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to stop you if you don't mind. Yeah. I have a question about like, was the partition of the subcontinent, like, was that the final, like the way I kind of see it is that like, is that the final act of this one of the most like violent colonial regimes that ever existed on the planet? Like, I mean, I, I know this is, this is like in the sense uh, that yeah. like, this was their final gift. This was their final gift to the entire like, to like over a billion people to 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 sort of rip their country and not just their countries is that to rip their identities into shards and to carefully place them into nice pockets where the only damage they'll do to each other like this is at least in the sense of like did they map their own religious hatred and like the centuries of sectarian war onto south asia as part of the strategy to keep this to keep this part of the world and its huge potentially powerful people under their boot, which, you know, I mean, I guess the plan kind of worked out. It kind of didn't because the vestiges of partition are still are still with us very much to this day. I mean, not vestiges because this is they created the map and they created the world. And part of sorry, this is a big rambling question, but like the thing that I kept thinking about. There's a line from. Very cheesy. I'm sorry. Field of Dreams at the end, where uh, where um, James Earl Jones is. He says that he says this thing like uh, he talking. They're talking. It's like this weird baseball nationalism. Like baseball is like an allegory for the American country, for the, the American nation. He says the one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has ruled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. Baseball has marked the time. Anyways, who cares about baseball? But the the this thing about rolling over like steamrollers, and I couldn't help but connect that to Hindustan. And the argument of your book is that they had to spend like they had to spend like centuries erasing this thing called Hindustan, right. and erasing it from people's hearts and their minds. Sorry to use a corny liberal expression. But like the language of it, the idea of it. And so, you know, your book is and I, I want to I want to bring this up in sort of my half of the conversation. So this is a preview. But like your book is an attempt to kind of take out this concept and and, and you know, kind of take it out from this underneath this rubble, so to speak. But how much of Hindustan has been lost? Like, is it something that you can get back like as a as a concept, I mean, as more than just a kind of abstract concept, like can there can you one day imagine? I mean, this is ridiculous, but I'm going to ask it anyways. But could you one day imagine a unified subcontinent like like the way Nasserism dreamed of a unified Arab Republic? Right. I mean, that was a disaster and it lasted like 15 minutes. So maybe I just answered. Or that like question. pan pan Africanism, maybe. Or pan, yeah, question. same thing. Like, is there a way like does this argument of yours lead to that politically or could it? Well, let me let me do a bit better example than 
than than the failed ones. Uh, EU. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> is the, uh, is the, the EU, EU concept is real though? Like not real. Is that our Europe, example yeah. of a success, Manan? Or the EU? <laughs> oh boy. That's about a politics. Think about it this way. So you have you had a you had a Holocaust. You had uh, wide scale killings. You had nationalisms that claimed civilizational difference in some cases. Obviously, Third Reich. Um, and you had a invention. In, so in my sense, I'm saying Hindustan has deep, deep roots. In the Europe sense, it's literally an invention that is immediately for the sake of capital, for the sake of the first currency. If you go back to the Treaty of Rome, what is that, 53, 54? That kind of envisage, envisages, oh, my English is getting bad now, um, <laughs> imagines a, um, a singular currency um, and, and movement of capital. So the EU that emerges can can take a immense violence can say that this christian on jewish violence will be refracted not in religious terms quote unquote sectarian terms but will become a part of aberrant nationalism that we can control through our understanding of totalitarianism through a burgeoning at that point uh, literature on totalitarianism and we can create um, a, a type of imagined regional space. And when we think of, um, you know, when I think about Hindustan that has, uh, has, a, has a validity, um, it's not in the terms of economics. It's not in the terms of kind of uh, movement of capital, right? And so, so the, the idea of pan-Africanism, pan-Islamism, the reason these pan-spatial movements were so powerful was that they were responding very literally to the colonial um, efforts, um, both in terms of British and, and French, um, to, 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 to diverge the, any kind of solidarities from emerging. Yeah. And I think the differences from those movements and from the movement that is happening, that happened in, in the creation of British India, was exactly what I think um, was pointed out that the British worked for three centuries to erase an idea, which is not what happens in Pan-Africanism and in Pan-Islamism, where that idea comes into being as a result of colonial, um, you know, right. as, as, uh, as um, um, scholars recently have, have shown. And so for Hindustan, I think it's, it's, it's less that it's a future that we can imagine, and it's more that, its substantial theoretical and social and cultural affect um, was eroded in a certain specific political sense, uh, you know, argued very, very forcefully through policies that I describe in the book, like amassment, um, collecting of manuscript, creating, creating bibliographic um, divisions, um, moving this knowledge out, um, erasing Persian as a, as a way of kind of linguistic um, um, administrative access to these spaces. So there I feel what, what, what the, the logic of my project, I, if I can think through it in the epilogue, isn't a return to it in Hindustan, but to say that, you know, as we confront a climate disaster in, in precisely in the subcontinent, where we know by 2025, perhaps by 2030, almost 300 million people will be displaced because of the riding, rising water table and, and the uh, uh, seawater uh, level, sea level and the dropping of the water table. There is just no way to confront that. We can't confront COVID. We saw this, this <laughs> um, without some idea that we have to create a new. So it, it may not need the name Hindustan, but there is going to be an idea that has to come into being politically that can create a future that can respond collectively. And I think for, for the reason I brought up EU was, was that the impetus under capital was strong enough for these states at, at, at that moment, early 50s, to basically um, legislate a, um, you know, a, a, a thing like EU into being and, and obviously try to hold it together over the last um, 40, 50 years. Um, and we, we actually have a 
a history of thousand years that that I think we can draw upon successfully to confront something that is apocalyptic in front of us, and that something can be um, can be confronted successfully. I think if if we actually have a unified vision of a future rather than a diverse uh, that rather than divesting from each other's um, you know um, attempts. I uh, I sometimes think of uh, the way British colonialism rolled out over India or um, over you know the North American continent as pretty apocalyptic too you know so there's also that that uh, experience <laughs> like we we have experience with apocalypse absolutely it's the famine death that colonialism yeah. caused in 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 the subcontinent just those deaths alone are apocalyptic on any global standard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't it crazy that, like, we were raised with this... I mean, I don't know about you two. Well, probably you, Justin, because you and I went to the same education system, essentially. But the this business of rendering the German National Socialists as the highest point of evil yeah. and how that conveniently erases literally just one example of British imperial violence, like not one example, but one, let's say, locality of British genocidal violence in one subcontinent alone, not including Africa, not including the Americas, not including anything else, just that one place alone, the scale of the violence is so mind-blowing. Like, like just to say that out loud, that like, that like, I studied how much of, 1944 or like 19, 1935 to like 1945 like even in my graduate student classes like even in terms of the priority of what gets remembered and who gets forgotten and like you know the belgians we all know this the belgians are let off the hook the the french are let off the hook like like this entire business of european genocide right like that's that was authored across the planet yeah. is so mind-boggling just to think of in the sub in the south asian subcontinent alone like it's just I can't even think about it. Like just in Bengal, the famine alone. Yeah. Is, and that guy gets a movie made after him every fifteen minutes. <laughs> Winston like, Churchill. This, like this is the degeneration. We're still here. We had to suffer through a week of mourning of their dumb, degenerate, <laughs> pedophile, aristocrat, fail fossilizing. Fossilized. <laughs> like we had to suffer a week of that. And it's 2021. It's too much. It was too much even for British people. They 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 started. They closed the complaints section on the BBC website. Too many people were. Okay, let me listen. I have one more question for you. Just one, oh, go ahead. One, uh, I just want to add one thing to that that nice rant. Um, <laughs> quality, quality rant. Quality rant. Uh, which is which is think about how the British. Um, are you know kind of presented in historiography and in, in popular discourse like a nation of shopkeepers, right? Uh, yeah, a polite they, and commercial right. people. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, they they got the empire in a fit of absent-mindedness. Yeah, just right? that's, that's, like, that's a direct like, with, oh, with this Benny out. Hill soundtrack playing in the background. Yeah. Like that's that's how they. No, figure, that's a direct like, quote, right, Manan? Who <laughs> yeah, was it that said that? that? It was Palmerston or some. That is it. That is a historian of the British Empire uh, who who wrote a book called "Absent-Minded Imperialists." Uh, <laughs> you know, the, and so that's the thing is like you know even the the brouhaha of like uh, again nine eleven after nine eleven people like Niall Ferguson. Who write, you know, who wrote these books on empire? Um, they were like, well, you know, the British one is really extremely good example for the Americans to follow because it's so liberal, so humane, so perfect, so civilizationally. So I think that 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 this, um, I want to say, from the perspective of, of a Pakistani or an Indian, this horrifying portrayal of the colonizers as absent-minded or shopkeepers. Um, you know, is is just incredibly, and this is done in Pakistan. As in, I grew up in an education system where we were taught that you know British colonialism did a lot of good. Look, we have yeah, always yeah. um, learn English, speak English better, so you can one day go to Oxford and you know be like uh, be like our ruling elite who you know yeah. who all went there. So you know, this is some deep, deep, <laughs> yeah, deep colonization here. But here's the here's where again like I've become that I've become that I've been saying this I've become that uncle that like says everything comes from Asia. But <laughs> your your book is like 
shows how everything comes from Asia. So there's this the, there's this text at the center of your book, which is like uh, the the Tarihi Firishta, the history of Hindustan, I guess, by this Muhammad Qasim Firishta, who wrote it in the early 1600s. And then it's like so many of these important texts from, you know, China, the, you know, the Central Asia, the Arab world um, gets translated, uh, makes its way to um, to Europe. And you argue that, you know, this this one of these guys, Dow, uh, one of these things, British, I guess, English orientalists does the trans learns Persian, does the translation. And you you argue that this text by Fidishta uh, actually has a big influence on the writing and the understanding of what history is in Europe, right? Yeah. Tell me, tell us about that because that's amazing. That's an amazing part of this. So I think I mentioned briefly. So what happens in the mid eighteenth uh, century as, as the British Empire is kind of rolling out at the war. Um, one of the one of the part of the military conquest um, done by the military officer, which Alexander Dow is in the Bengal infantry, uh, rises to the you know the rank of lieutenant colonel, um, and um, you know so Alexander Dow, who's friends very close, he's a Scottish, he's, uh, he's very close friends with David Hume, he's uh, Scottish uh, Enlightenment, yeah, yeah, and then um, he's. Uh, you know, he's a, a bit of a kind of, I don't think I used the word in the book, but he's a bit of a blowhard. So he's a bit of kind of has the uh, Columbus, what, what now kids call Columbusing, uh, has a bit of that Columbusing impulse, right? I discovered, I, I made. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, and so what he does is, is part of his military project is to acquire Persian texts that he then renders into various forms. Um, in English, but in various, as in he renders into various forms, meaning he changes their genre oftentimes, or he, um, you know, uses them in different ways. And so in that acquisition, he begins with sort of um, these these stories uh, that are plays. Um, and these plays and stories are, are basically for the London audience to get a feel of the culture um, of the East. Um, and then he brings back this history that he claims was given to him by people that he asked, um, you know, what's the best history out there? Uh, and they said, well, here, this is the best history out there. And then this was a history written um, about 150 years before, um, you know, Dow asks for it. And so in, in 1768, he renders it into English, dedicates it to uh, the, the King George, says this is this will tell you about the new colony that you've acquired. Now, I think it's important, right? Like this is precisely at the time when already the American colonies have begun to, to um, you know, ask for more and more, um, let's just call it in quotes, freedom. And, um, and so there is a moment in 1768, 1776, where these, this text, by Dao is circulating. So his second volumes come out in 1772. Um, think of, you know, Adam Smith, uh, Wealth of Nations, 1776. Think of uh, Edward Gibbons, Decline and Fall of Roman Empire. Uh, you know, and you were talking about Voltaire and Kant Voltaire, as well. who's writing his uh, History of the World, Universal History. Um, Kant, who is starting to write on his idea of universal peace as part of his universal history project. Um, so through Dow to Hume, from Hume to Voltaire, from Voltaire to Kant, this text circulates. Um, yeah. And it circulates as an exemplar of how to think of the world, the Oriental world, which until that moment um, was being fed two different pictures. One was the idea of China, which was very important to Europe um, as, as, as early as uh, 14... 1500. Um, but now they, they, because the, the French and the German and the British were getting more and more um, opportunities, quote unquote opportunities, jobs, uh, positions in the British uh, military, um, they were really interested in, in kind of incorporating India into this, this universality. 
And so this particular history that he's rendered into English in 1768 and 1772 becomes the basis of the idea of universal history that, that Voltaire argues for, that Kant picks up, and then Kant's student Herder writes his first kind of universal history um, based, on, based on this very text. Um, Kant obviously doesn't like it, so he anonymously reviews it and says it's shit. Um, but you know Kant always stood by his words right Um, but the idea uh, from from Hindustan these ideas from Hindustan or ideas refracted through Tao from Hindustan became incredibly important for this notion of world history that Europe at this point is beginning to articulate very forcefully because it it fits the, the notion of you know as we talked earlier, the waiting, waiting room of history, right? So where does history as an agent of active force end up being requires the progression narrative. And so fast forward through Schlegel to Hegel, um, you get this idea very much in his philosophy of world history lectures, specifically uh, where the world is divided and the Oriental world for Hegel, um, again, rests upon these, the very same rendering, Dow's rendering, um, and then Mill, um, who father of JS, James Mill, um, writes, um, you know, a history of, of British India that uses, uh, by 1801, 1805, that uses Tao. So what, in that little kind of snippet of time between 1768 to 1805, what we see is like two important ideas. One idea of liberty, as we know from JS Mill, and one idea of universal history which is predicated on this idea of liberty, right? This idea of progress. Um, They crystallize. And their crystallization um, is based on an engagement with the history that I kind of is the the center of my work, um, which is Farishta's Tariq Hindustan. What I love is like, you know, the the idea of the waiting room of history, because really until, you know, in the early 17, up to the early 1700s, you know, as far as I have read, Europeans recognized that uh, China and India were ahead of them, you know, technologically in so-called civilizational or developmental terms. And then they were, Europe was in the waiting room until around this time. And, uh, and then. I mean, I I feel that, I feel that that narrative, I mean, I totally get where you're coming from, Justin, but I feel, I find that to be a self-effacing narrative Europe constructs that we at some point thought Chinese were really awesome. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, in some way it's part of their backlash for sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I don't think anyone actually has ever, uh, I mean, I, 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 I give no sympathy, I guess, to Voltaire or others who, who, um, you know, who, who imagined the, that the capacity of the Ottoman Turk to be barbaric um, had some aspects of it where some equity could be seen, right? And so, um, in the in the sort in the, I mean, I'm not a Europeanist. I am not an early modern Europe person. But in the course of my research for this project, I started reading uh, some of these, um, uh, you know, narratives of uh, Vasco da Gama's voyages and some of these early Portuguese accounts um, um, that are, you know, about the kind of, um, the, let's just call it journeys to, to, to India from Spain or Portugal. And what was I- I- incredibly shocking to me, because I never uh, realized it from secondary scholarship, was how important Muslim cruelty was there to them. Right. How they were everywhere they stopped. They were like, OK, if we can find a Muslim, let's string that one up. Um, <laughs> and while recognizing that the Muslims were the only one who knew the path to India. So there was this dependency where we want to stab you after you take us to the next stop and then we will stab you. Um, yeah. And so this kidnapping and and killing of uh, various kind of in quote unquote informers that are read as Muslim, whether they were or not, uh, we don't know. Moors, right? They usually use the word Moors. And and it's so integral to these early stories. And I, you know, in secondary literature, you never find any mention of that. You never find like how important crusader violence was. 
was. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that because I was just going to say that's, you know, that period of time that was much more an extension of the crusading, you know, medieval ideas that they had, you know, right. long before their, long before, uh, <laughs> you know, well, they got the enlightenment ideas from Asia. Yeah, but but you know, it's, uh, it's also, that's another kind of a trick, right? Like as in the crusades, I imagine that they had nothing to do with Columbus or Gam- the Gama. When they had, oh, no, that's, they yeah, had everything that's, to do with Columbus and Da Gama, but then Columbus and Da Gama become originary points for the Enlightenment project and the quote unquote new world. Um, and that also is an epistemic break in, um, you know, in Europe's understanding of its own history. And, you know, so just like uh, um, earlier Sina was talking about, you know, uh, the National Socialists versus the English colonial uh, world, there is a kind of a disjuncture in our recognition of uh, British violence. Um, I feel like there's this idea that the Crusades were not intimately tied to the histories that, um, you know, people like uh, Schopenhauer or uh, Immanuel Kant are are kind of uh, thinking through. (laughs) 